Miscarriages of justice seem to occur all too often in today's world. I'm sure we've all heard of someone being wrongfully accused, convicted, and sent to prison based upon faulty eyewitness testimony who serves several years in prison only to be released later after new DNA or other evidence is discovered that proves their innocence. These failures of justice are horrible, not only for the wrongfully accused, but also for the victim whose actual assailant often goes unnamed and unpunished. Yet another injustice that can occur from time to time is the instance in which a victim's assailant is correctly identified, but is not fully held to account for their actions. While it is certainly possible that we may not agree as to the type of injustice which will occur in the following case, I think it is safe to assume that we can all agree a true failure of justice has in fact taken place. June 13th, 1980. 12-year-old Tanya Leigh Lewis lives in a small apartment with her mother at a low-income housing complex in the western Missouri town of Nevada. The interior of their apartment is currently in the process of being painted by a neighbor named Martin Priest. Martin had started work inside the apartment a day earlier and had purchased a car from Tanya's mother while he was there. Tanya had just completed sixth grade at the Nevada Middle School and was looking forward to a summer that was sure to be dominated by fun, friends, and busy mornings delivering newspapers for her job with the Nevada Daily Mail. It was hot that Friday afternoon and Tanya was at home with her friend Kelly Shoemaker. The girls decided they would attempt to beat the heat by taking a trip to the local public pool. Martin overheard their plans and decided that he would join them. Martin was not supposed to get off work until later that day but his boss allowed him to leave early so that he could attend a supposed job interview. Martin instead took his stepdaughter to the pool to meet up with Tanya and Kelly. Martin and Tanya were witnessed playing together at the pool, and at one point Martin purchased a soda for Tanya and his stepdaughter to share. Martin and Tanya met up again at around 5 p.m. that day to play basketball. The two played basketball together until about 7.30 when some of Martin's friends asked if they wanted to join them for a game of Indian ball. Indian ball is basically a version of baseball that can be played with fewer players. Tanya called her mother to let her know she would be home late, but instead of telling her she was going with Martin and his friends, she claimed that she would be going to the movies with Kelly. At one point during the baseball game, Tanya was knocked down by another player who was chasing a fly ball and did not see her. She was reportedly unhurt, but left the game after the incident. She was last seen shortly before 9 p.m. walking home. A short time after Tanya left, Martin also left, telling the others that he needed to pick up his wife from work. By 10.30, Tanya had still not returned home. Her mother began to worry. She remembered seeing Martin with Tanya at the basketball court earlier in the day, and she went to his apartment, hoping that he may know where she was. Martin claimed that he had last seen Tanya on the basketball court. He claimed that she had gotten a splinter in her finger and had gone home. He said that he also went home, stayed there alone all evening, and did not see Tanya after she had left. Martin failed to mention anything about the baseball game. Twelve-year-old Tanya Lewis wouldn't make it home that night, or any other night for that matter. Young Tanya Leigh Lewis would never again return to the small apartment she had shared with her mother in that quiet midwestern town of Nevada, Missouri.
Two days later, on Sunday evening, a pair of young men set out for a rural farm pond near the town of Sheldon, Missouri. Sheldon is located about 11 miles south of Nevada. The pair had planned a relaxing summer evening of fishing, but instead were horrified when they arrived and found Tanya's lifeless body floating face down near the bank of the pond. The Vernon County Sheriff's Office was notified and deputies were sent to the scene. The pond was not visible from the road and was surrounded by tall, overgrown grass. Investigators were able to determine, by examining beaten down areas in the grass, that a vehicle had driven through the grass and parked close to the pond. There was oil and grease left at the spot where the vehicle had apparently been parked. It was also determined by looking at tire tracks left at the scene that the suspect vehicle's front tires had very little tread and its rear tires were bald. Beaten down paths in the grass indicated that someone had exited the driver's side of the vehicle and walked to the passenger side. There was a human hair located on a barbed wire fence nearby and the grass near the fence was heavily trodden. Beyond the fence, the path of beaten down grass led to the pond through a thicket of briars. There was no hair, bits of clothing, or blood located in the briars. Tanya's body was fully clothed, but the young men who found her claimed that her shirt had been rolled up around her chest and had briars attached to it. They further claimed that they had seen scratches on Tanya's back. Since Martin had spent most of the day with Tanya and was one of the last people to see her alive, he was a prime suspect and was soon being questioned by police. Martin advised that on the night of Tanya's disappearance he had indeed taken a trip to a pond but not the pond in which Tanya had been found. Martin claimed that he had gone to another location known as Katy Island. Investigators found this hard to believe as Katy Island Pond was only about 18 inches deep and covered with moss on the night Tanya went missing. They also inspected Martin's fishing equipment and found it to be covered in dust, apparently being stored and unused for some time. The officers observed what appeared to be scratches on the back of Martin's legs, which ran from the back of his knees to his ankles. When questioned about the scratches, Martin became angry and defensive. Martin would not allow the scratches to be photographed, and by the time a warrant was obtained several days later, Martin had apparently rubbed the scabs off the scratches. A visual analysis was conducted on the hair that had been found on the barbed wire fence, but the forensic analyst was unable to match it either to Martin or Tanya. Martin's shoes were examined for any possible trace evidence, but nothing was located. Upon examining Martin's car, investigators found that the vehicle leaked oil and grease and had prairie grass in the undercarriage and interior of the vehicle. This grass was later determined to be similar to the grass near the pond. There were hair fibers in the car that were found to be microscopically similar to fibers on the body. Some possible blood spots were also located in the vehicle, but were determined to be red paint. Dirt samples were taken from the vehicle, but they were unable to be matched to any dirt samples from the pond. Although the pond was not visible from the road, it is possible that Martin was familiar with its location due to his mother having once considered running the property. Tanya's body was found in a shallow part of the pond, but there were areas in the pond that were deep enough for swimming. The forensic pathologist who examined Tanya's body on Monday morning found no evidence of bone fractures to any of her limbs or skull, but her body was described as being badly decomposed which meant that he was unable to say for sure that there were no injuries or blows that had not caused fractures. The small blood vessels in Tanya's lungs were examined for any rupturing, which often occurs in cases of strangulation and smothering, but they were found to be intact. There was no evidence of sexual assault and no evidence of disease, poisons, stimulants, or depressants. 
Fingernail scrapings were taken, and on one fingernail, a very minute and unidentified bit of black substance that appeared to be either oil or grease was located, but the other fingernails showed nothing unusual. The pathologist also failed to find the scratches that had been reported on Tanya's back or any briars in or on her clothing. The pathologist hypothesized that the illusion of scratches on Tanya's back could have been caused by the sloughing off of skin from Tanya's back, which may have occurred when she was loaded into the ambulance. He further believed it was possible that the scratches may have been nothing more than streaks of dirt that had been removed when the body was cleaned by the mortician. Even though the pathologist was unable to say if Tanya was alive or dead when she entered the pond, his personal opinion was that her death was due to accidental drowning, and he could find nothing inconsistent with this belief. On July 16, 1980, Martin was in jail on unrelated theft and forgery charges when he was additionally charged with capital murder in relation to Tanya's death. Martin had been held in the county jail for less than a month on August 5th, when his 32-year-old wife, Geneve Priest, apparently desperate to see Martin released, decided to take drastic measures. Whether it was entirely Geneve's idea or a plan hatched by Martin is not clear. But either way, Geneve went to the Vernon County Jail that day with intentions on making Martin a free man. After arriving at the jail, Geneve waited until the jailer was distracted and stuck something in his back, apparently implying that it was a weapon, and demanded Martin's release. The jailer refused to release Martin and Geneve fled the area only to be arrested 10 days later when a warrant was issued as a result of the failed escape. Martin pled not guilty to murder and the case was set for jury trial. The trial was moved from Vernon County to Cass County because of a change of venue requested by Martin's attorney. And on Thursday, March 5, 1981, the Cass County jury returned a verdict. The jury found Martin guilty of second degree murder and Martin was sentenced to 25 years in prison. The guilty verdict would bring some closure to Tanya's family, but the closure would be short-lived as a few years later, Martin would be a free man and another young girl would go missing. Alright, so that was episode one. This is a serial podcast, so episode two is going to pick up right where we left off with episode one. Um, so don't despair if you were uh, involved in the story and uh, it ended too soon for you. We'll pick up right where we left off next time. Um, if you like the podcast so far, please, please, please give me a, a five-star review on iTunes. Um, it's going to get more people to listen to it. Um, it's going to allow me you know, to make more of these episodes. Um, hopefully, if I can get this podcast popular enough, I'll be able to you know, spend more time on it and pump out more and more episodes. Um, I do have a Facebook page set up, a closed Facebook group um, for anybody that wants to discuss the case. It is uh, the question mark, uh, question mark pod on the question mark podcast. Sorry, on Facebook, uh, that's the group. Um, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at uh, question mark at question mark pod. Um, you know, there's all. What else do I got? Uh, Gmail. I got Gmail. If you want to hit me up on Gmail, it's questionmarkpod at gmail.com. And I think that's that about does it. Um, so thanks for listening. Stay tuned. I'll have another episode out shortly. And like I said, please rate me on iTunes. Give me a good review. Um, and I'll keep more coming for you. Thanks.